0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well good morning Anchor Church, great to see you here today. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here at Anchor Church. A special welcome to those of you who are in the room and those who are watching online. We're so glad that you have chosen to join us today. And, uh, and what a day to be in church, I'm sure as Hope was reading that passage, you were thinking to yourself, I am glad it's not me who has to preach that passage, because this is without doubt uh, within some of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture, at least in modern Western context of church. So let me just offer a couple of quick caveats before I pray and we dive into this. The first is, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, and this is your first time in church... Can I just say this? We would much prefer to talk to you about uh, some fundamental questions about who is Jesus, what he has done, rather than fast forward to ethics. We believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the ABC of the Christian faith and the things that we will talk about tonight are the X, Y, Z. And that's how Paul's really structured his letter in Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3 It's all about uh, what the good news is, what Jesus has done, who we are, the new identity that we've received. And then, chapter four, to the end, Paul pivots. And in 4 1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received, and then lays out what it looks like for us to live in light of the realities that he's just explained in the first three chapters. And so, we would love to start there, but hey, you've turned up here, and here you are this Sunday. The second caveat is this is not a sermon on singleness. I just don't have time in one sermon to address the full spectrum of relationships. I've preached a sermon on, uh, on singleness that's on our website. You can find it 30th of sep- September, 2018. Hit our podcast. It is there. If you're looking for a sermon on singleness, I, I simply don't have time to address that today. The third thing is that what we will bump into this morning as we unpack these verses is what's called the household codes, the household Codes And it's a framework, a first century framework, and it's not unique to Paul. He didn't invent this framework. It's a framework that existed uh, throughout culture, outside of um, Jewish culture, outside of Christian culture. It was a part of Greco-Roman culture at large. And everyone was very familiar with what the household codes were about. And uh, in general, the household codes um, would address... Uh, the person of privilege, particularly the male head of the household in the first century, and then call for those who were considered uh, of less authority and power in the first century, women, children, and slaves, to offer subservience towards the leader of the household. And as Paul writes here in chapter 5 and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or Peter will write similarly in 1 Peter chapter 3, what they're doing is they're taking what is a, a very common cultural phenomenon, a household code, and they're putting it in the Scriptures, but they are Christianizing it to a degree and subverting quite radically some of the implications of the household codes. In particular, they're elevating the status of the weaker parties of these household codes by instructing the, the men and the husbands of these households Um, in what it looks like to let go of their power and to serve those who would culturally be considered weaker. And so Paul will do that, Peter will do that as they write these things. These household codes, the Christian versions of them, would be considered radically affirming of women, children and slaves in the first century, almost to radically qualify the statements that they would be making. We'll see a little bit more of that in a second. Now that's really important for us to grasp because what it means is we read these passages with very different ears. See when, it, you know, as you read this this morning, as Hope read that to you, I'm sure you were thinking to yourself, really? This is shocking. Are we serious? In In 2020, do we still believe this stuff? In the first century, they would have had a completely different response. They would have thought to themselves, are you seriously kidding This is so affirming. This is almost too affirming of those who would be considered by the rest of our society sometimes as a little more than objects. And so we need to do the hard work of trying to understand this passage in our context. 2,000 years later, what does it look like for us? So with those couple of quick caveats, let me pray for, for me and for you as we jump into this part of God's Word together. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your Word is living and active. We thank you that it is like a two-edged sword that judges the thoughts and attitude of our hearts. We thank you that your Word is like a seed that produces a harvest of righteousness in our lives. God, we thank you that you do not remain silent on the specifics of what it looks like to be a disciple, a follower, an imitator of Jesus. So this morning, God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would help us to sit humbly underneath it. We refuse to believe the lie that we are wiser than you. So Father God, I pray that you would um, speak to us this morning, particularly this morning, those who are married. God, I pray that there would be a word that would encourage us to live within marriages that are healthy and Flourishing and strong, and a beautiful witness of what your good news message is to a watching world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, who here is a fan of the TV show Modern Family? Anyone like Modern Family? Three of you like that show. Um, it's, it's actually I, I wouldn't call myself necessarily a fan of the show, but uh, I've watched it a number of times, and I do particularly like it. The premise of the show um, is that there are a number of families interconnected to each other, stepbrothers and and uh, and and stepmoms, and uh, you know it's all kind of centered around the father Jay, who has two children and their families, and it's really a bit of a breakdown critique of what would. You know, traditionally have been viewed the nuclear family and casting a bit of a vision for what families could look like in the new world, uh, redefining family in a whole bunch of different ways, uh, a gay family together, uh, an old dad with a, a very young mistress wife who's got a son the same age as his grandchildren, and then a somewhat hilariously dysfunctional you know, ordinary American family. A mother and wife and two kids, and and you'll notice there that um, Phil, who's somewhat of the center of the show, Phil Dunphy, is this um, father who just lacks a whole bunch of self awareness. Uh, is quite funny. He says things that are completely inappropriate and doesn't realize it. Um, and uh, he thinks of himself as a cool dad. And his whole motto about parenting is he calls it parenting. That's when you talk like a peer, but you act like a parent. Uh, And I mean, the whole premise of the show is hilarious. But what you notice as you watch the show is that there are a bunch of uh, expectations and assumptions that are caught up in the narrative of the story. Assumptions about family and what family looks like. Assumptions about some of the roles that will be played in those families And uh, in ways that that looks different, depending on which family dynamic you're looking into. We live in a world where family um, has all of those expectations and assumptions fed into it. We live in a world where we are looking for a narrative of what it means to be married people, a married family... And we are all shaped by some narrative. For most of us, we're shaped by our families that we grew up in, our family of origin. So much of your experience of being a husband or a wife is mirrored by what you saw in your parents growing up in both healthy and unhealthy ways. We're all shaped and formed by the culture that we live in. And into that context of culture shaping, culture forming, Paul will speak a countercultural narrative, of what it means to be husband and wife in the first century. It's a vision for what it means to be a family. Now, before we get into unpacking Paul's instructions to husbands and wives, it's really important that we pay attention to the context. Cast your minds back to last week. For those of you who are here, we looked at what it meant to be God's people walking. We use that metaphor of walking, and we talked about walking in a number of different ways. The final instruction was to walk in step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Paul says you need to continually be filled with the Spirit. And at the end of those verses, at the end of um, verse 18 to, to 20, Paul will give four ways that being filled with the Spirit manifests in our life, four ways that he wants to see that happen. And here are the four ways. The first is he will say that being filled with the Spirit means that we address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So he particularly has a corporate gathering like this in view, that when we gather together, we will address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's one of the ways, one of the fruits of being filled with the Spirit. The second is that we will sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Again, corporate worship, singing together, worshipping God with all of our lives. Thirdly, he will talk about um, giving thanks. We spoke a little bit about that last week, that thankfulness is the antidote to wanting to take, take, take and receive in this world. He will say, part of being filled with the Spirit, a Spirit-filled life, is a life of thanksgiving. And then the final thing, the final part of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian is found there in verse 21, the, the start of the reading that Hope read for us. So come back to it, have a look at what it says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled believer of Jesus? It means that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is part of what it means to be an imitator of God, a disciple of Jesus. Within the context of a worshipping, spirit-filled community, we submit one to the other. Now that's important, right? Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of gentleness and humility and, as we've seen so crucially here in the book of Ephesians, the spirit of unity, the spirit that draws people Together And so because the Spirit is gentle and humble and unites, that ought to be manifest as we are filled with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are those things in our lives. And so the picture of marriage that Paul paints here is one where a husband and a wife, as they are filled with the Spirit, are giving of themselves fully to their partner, to their spouse. Fully giving of themselves in humility and gentleness and mutual Submission. Now that's really important because as we get to verse 22, which we will in a moment, where Paul says, Wives submit to your husbands, the verb submit is actually not there in verse 22. It, it literally reads, Wives to your husbands. And the question is, What to your husbands? So it draws the action of verse 21 into verse 22. Now, that's really crucial for us because. We have to understand that as Paul is going to launch into talking about these household codes, this context, this framework that he receives from the culture around him, he will frame what he says there with this verse in verse 21, that we are called to mutual submission one to the other, and that will play itself out in different ways within the household. This week, I'm going to focus on marriage. Next week, James is going to focus on what it looks like for fathers and children, and for masters and slaves. But verse 21 is the frame. It is the thing that qualifies everything that Paul will go into say. He takes these these this cultural framework and he he literally subverts it. He, he says this is what it looks like to do marriage in a Christian way. Now it's important for us to realize that Paul wrote these verses into a highly patriarchal culture. That's uh, very common. Uh, we, we know that to be the case. In the first century, women were not equal to men. Some were treated as property along with slaves and children. Uh, it is said uh, that for men's sexual pleasure, you had a mistress For your daily needs, you had a concubine, and for legitimate children, you had a wife. That gives you a picture of what it meant to be a male in the first century. It's a highly patriarchal culture. Aristotle gives uh, his version of these household codes that predominantly reinforce the authority and leadership of a man and the subjugation of women, children, and slaves. And Paul will give his own version of this. Uplifting those who are considered less powerful and focusing on the release of power for those who would, in the first century at least, be considered more powerful. So what does he say? With this in mind, what does he say to husbands? Have a look at verse 25. This is what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. So if you are a, a husband in the room here this morning, or if you desire to be a husband, perhaps you're engaged and will be a husband in the near future. Here's the deal for you. This is what it means to be a husband, according to Paul. He says, you are to love your wife with a Jesus standard of love. You are to love your wife with a Jesus standard of love. And how has, how has he, he says there, love her as in the same way or like Jesus has loved us. How has he done that? Well, Jesus has given up everything that was his. Jesus gave up everything that was His by rights. He was seated at the right hand of the Father, angels worshipping Him. And He gave up everything. He crossed the universe for us. He was born in the form of a human. He was uh, took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled Himself to death and not just any type of death the most brutal, humiliating form of death known to man, crucifixion. He died in our place, taking our punishment on his behalf, the innocent, perfect one, that he might set us free. Jesus is the one who went to his disciples and did the most menial form of service that could possibly be done in the first century. Remember when John the Baptist said, I'm not even even worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task. Only the lowest servant of the house would undo people's sandals and wash their feet as they came into the house. And what does Jesus do? As an act of love, he takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. Jesus has loved us by lowering himself to the lowest Possible position and giving up everything that was his, all of his power, all of his authority, all of his glory, to take on the very likeness of humanity and die in our place. And that's what it means for husbands to love your wives like Jesus has loved up, gi- giving up everything in order to love your wife. You know, C.S. Lewis in his um, book, The Four Loves, identifies. Surprise, surprise, four different types of love. Uh, And the four loves he identifies are this. The first is, and I don't even know how to pronounce this to be honest, but I think it's storge, and it's an empathy love, the type of love that is there between a a child-parent bond. It's the type of love that exists in a relationship where there is necessary dependence of one on another. So parents and children. The second type of love is philia or philo, And it's a friendship type of love. It's the type of love that you feel for your, your long-term friends, the people that you grow up with, the people that were in your bridal party at your wedding. It's friendship love. The third type of love is eros. And that is romantic love. That is the love that our world is obsessed with. It's the love that's at the centerpiece of every Hollywood movie ever made. Romantic love And none of those loves are the type of love that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5. He's not talking about the type of love that's dependent on a relationship. He's not talking about friendship love. He's not talking about romance, although he's certainly not opposed to romance and sparks and fireworks and intimacy and all that kind of stuff. No, no, the type of love that Paul is talking about here is agape love. It is God love. It's unconditional love for another person. And he says to husbands, that is how you were to love your wife. man. if you want to know what it looks like to love your wife or your future wife, it means to lay down your preferences and your ego and your pride and your comforts in order to help your wife reach her redemptive potential. It means doing whatever it takes on your part to pursue your wife's heart and to help her thrive in her giftedness and in the ways that God has created her and in her role as a mother of your children. If you have children, it means to serve her with a Jesus standard of love. That's what it looks like, to help her thrive, to help her reach her redemptive potential. I love what um, Tony Merida, uh, uh, who wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians As he unpacks these verses here, he identifies three tones to this love that Paul calls uh, husbands to love their wives with. And they're all kind of marked by what Jesus has done for the church. He said it's a sacrificial love, it's a sanctifying love, and it's a satisfying love. Firstly, it's a sacrificial love. If you go back to verse 25, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what our love ought to look like for our wives. Marriage means dying to yourself, giving yourself up for your wife. It means putting her needs and preferences and desires in front of your own. Now, if that sounds radical to you, just remember that Paul says that that's the attitude that every Christian should have. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Take upon yourselves the mind of Christ, who what? Consider the needs of others better than his own. That's what it means for us, husbands, to consider your wife's preferences, desires, needs, and to serve them. To die, it's a sacrificial type of love. It's costly. Marriage is not convenient, right, at times. The romantic picture that we often get sold of marriage is just not real. The reality of marriage requires husbands to wake up every day and to make a choice to die to themselves to love to lovingly serve their wife. Secondly, it's a sanctifying love. So verse 26, we'll talk about the fact that Jesus cleanses the church, washes her by his blood. And that ought to shape the love of a husband for his wife. Now, you are certainly not Jesus to your wife, right? Men, your wife does not need an inferior savior. You are not your wife's saviour. She has Jesus, right? She doesn't need you to save her. But the tone of our love is one that ought to sanctify by, by the very virtue of the fact that your wife is married to you. We ought to hope that our wives are more like Jesus because of that. Not in spite of that. They're, they are more like Jesus because they are married to you. <laughs> That's a challenge, right? It's not easy. Thirdly, a satisfying love. In verse 29, Paul will talk about Um, Jesus, cherishing and nurturing, that that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, taking care of their own bodies. And our our love ought to be one that satisfies, that nourishes, that lifts up. So sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and satisfying love. Husbands, let me... um, Let me challenge you briefly on a couple of areas that I I think I personally struggle with and I believe are probably common to most of the other men in the room. And the first is the challenge of passivity and laziness. It's the first sin of Adam who stood by and didn't say anything as his wife was deceived by the serpent. Passivity and laziness. Maybe passivity as we sit by and watch our wives nurture our children, but but we don't do much. Passivity in terms of some of the household chores that need to get done in our house. Uh, We come home from work, think, oh, I've had such a big, long day. I just want to sit on the couch, put my feet up, watch TV, and have dinner laid out in front of me. Passivity and laziness is potentially a weakness of men. The second is selfishness. That's probably true of, of anyone. But so much of what Paul is calling husbands to here is to die to selfishness and to live self deprecating lives that are focused on another. And then finally, uh, the proclivity of overworking. Men of finding your identity in your career, in your jobs, and giving all of your best energy to that. And then having zero energy for your wife, or zero energy for your children, or zero energy for your family. Paul has no space for us sacrificing our families on the altar of career development. Now I realize that work can be demanding. Particularly in this season of life, career and work are demanding. And Paul has no problem with hard work. Paul has no problem with career. Paul has no problem with um, even... Becoming wealthy as a result of the fruits of our labor. But a family is a priority. I want to put before you the legacy of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, if you look back at some of the marriages in church history, some of them are appalling. Some of the heroes that we actually hold up in the Christian faith had horrendous marriages. George Whitfield, for example, had a horrible marriage. Spent most of his time traveling the world on horseback, completely neglecting his wife. Wesley had a probably adequate marriage at the best, but Jonathan Edwards had a beautiful marriage. And guess what? He and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. 11 children. They were busy. And uh, and Sarah um, Sarah has some beautiful things to say about her husband. And probably one of the most beautiful is, when Jonathan died and left her as a widow, she wrote a note to her daughter. And this is what she said. She said, Oh, my dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may all kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him. That's Jonathan, her husband, so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Now, apart from that being a profound, profound statement about how to deal with pain and suffering, what a beautiful vision, men, to, to be able to have a vision for your wife saying, I'm so thankful for the time that God gave me with this man and the legacy that he has left for our family. That's what Paul has in mind here for husbands. Well, secondly, to the wives. Uh, And this is what it says in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not to every man in the church, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now what does that word submission mean? That nasty word submission. What does it mean? It literally means to line up under something. It's sometimes used in a military context where... Uh, soldiers are told to line up under their leader, under their corporal, under their lieutenant. And it's not automatically a negative term. You see, Jesus submits himself both to his earthly parents and to his heavenly father. So it can't be negative. If Jesus does this, it can't be automatically negative. Paul is saying here that the wife submits herself. She lines up under her husband. But what's she lining up under? she's lining up under the agape love of her husband. She's lining up under a husband who has a love for her that has a Jesus standard stamped on it. Now, this does not mean subjugation or subservience or inequality. Absolutely does not, not, not mean those things. Neither is this synonymous with traditional marriage roles, right? We've you know, some of you will have parents or grandparents who grew up in an era that, where there were very much traditional domestic duties for a woman and a man went to work and a woman's place was in the home. Paul actually doesn't mean that and the scriptures don't categorically say that either. Just read Proverbs 31 and what the woman does there, right? She is a business leader. She a, runs a household. She does a whole myriad of things and is respected at the town gate. This does not mean... Traditional married roles. A woman can have a job outside of the home. She can earn more money than her husband. She can be a leader in the marketplace. She can, in fact, be a more gifted leader than her husband. More theologically formed than her husband. All of those things can be true. This does not mean that she is a doormat for her husband. It simply means that she honors her husband's leadership and love for her. That agape love. She aligns up underneath it. Now, if you were paying attention to the news this week, you'll have noticed that the Anglican Church released a report this week, um, nationwide, on the prevalence of domestic violence within their church. And what they found was that inside the Anglican Church, so this is no, no, no other denominations, not a reflection on any other denomination, but with inside the National Anglican Church, women experience intimate partner violence more than the general population. So women inside the Anglican church experience intimate partner violence. 41% of women said yes to that, as opposed to 38% of women in the community. Now those statistics are tragic. They're absolutely tragic and horribly unacceptable. That, that should never be the case. That women inside the church experience Intimate partner violence more than women in the general population. Some men wish to take verses like these and weaponize them against their wives and demand their wives to submit to them. Just so you know, if you have to demand your wife to follow you, you've probably got a leadership problem. So let me say really clearly there is absolutely no category in the scriptures at all for domestic violence for abuse or violence be that spiritual abuse physical abuse absolutely unacceptable listen even even the most conservative imp- interpretation of these verses like even the most fundamentalist, conservative, restrictive Christian Christian interpretation of these verses leaves zero room for violence and abuse. You cannot arrive there from these verses or from any verse in Scripture. Literally, look at what Paul just said to husbands. Love your wife and lay your life down for her like Jesus. Release your power. Release your strength. Release everything that the culture invests in you as a, as a father of a household and let it all go and serve those as the weaker party. That's what it means. It doesn't mean anything else. There is no place for violence. There is no place for abuse. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this, we have an interpretive issue here with this passage. It's unmistakable that this was written into a patriarchal culture. That this was written into a context where women were not equal to men. And so as we take these verses and read them into our context, we've got some work to do. Do we read these verses as transcultural principles that are true for every single culture, no matter what time in history, no matter what cultural background, whether it's Eastern or European or Anglo or Asian or... Pacific Islander, whatever culture, this is true for every culture in all times, or is this an entirely cultural phenomenon that is no longer true anymore, or perhaps might be true dependent on the cultural context you find yourself in? Now, I have to say, that is the $7 billion question (laughs) about this passage. But perhaps our problem is we've fought so hard over this passage that the binaries just aren't that helpful. And the truth of the matter is... Yes, this is a contextual thing. This was written into a patriarchal culture. That does shape how this ought to be read. We do need to pay attention to the fact that Paul completely subverts this. But perhaps there also are some underlying principles here that are true for all people in all places. Now, what I've suggested to you today, you may disagree with, and that's fine. I've got got no problem with you disagreeing with this vision of what it looks like to be married. That's okay. But I think we have to do the hard work of of wrestling with this passage to arrive at an opinion. And my suggestion is, if you are married, to make sure that you're on the same page here so that there is harmony and unity in your marriage. Because that's Paul's vision here. As we are filled with the Spirit, the result is unity and mutual giving of yourself to the other. And as Paul wraps this up, he finishes with this statement by saying, you know what, this is a profound mystery. What I'm talking about here is Jesus and the church. And you're like, what? I don't understand you, Paul, at times. But what he's saying here is that there is a picture, there is a grand narrative, a story that God has been writing from the very beginning. And if you think about it, the first chapter of the Bible opens with a wedding. Adam and Eve brought together Woman, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam sings over her, rejoices in her, delights in her. You fast forward to the picture of Jesus laying his life down for his bride, and then it closes in Revelation 22 with a picture of a wedding banquet and a feast. You could say that the story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is a giant love story that God has been writing for all eternity. And every single marriage as a little window a little picture a little illustration of that that's the profound mystery of what marriage is it's more than just the love between a husband and a wife that every marriage is actually a pointer to a grander reality the story of jesus and his bride christians have a very high view of marriage we view it as a covenant we view it as a covenant. That is agape, unconditional, God-like love for another person. That is covenantal language. You know, when a married couple make their vows, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor at this church is to marry people. And some of you in the room, I've, I've recently married. Keith and Jess, I think they're here. Ryan and Alex, We've got the privilege of marrying these guys and witnessing them declare their vows to each other. What's happening in that moment as a, as a couple vows themselves to the other person? That is not a commitment of present love. That is a statement of future commitment that I promise to love you no matter what. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. Now you might think to yourself, hang on a sec. Surely that's naive. To give yourself fully to another person, to love them without conditions, that's that's opening yourself up to being hurt, to all kinds of abuse. Surely that's not what it means. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has loved us with an unconditional love that says, I will love you no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, no matter how far you've gone, I love you. And that is the pattern for Christian marriage. That we would love each other, no matter what. That we would give of ourselves fully to another person. And husbands, just so you know, for your wife to do that took a lot of courage. Because women are so afraid of being taken advantage of that she would give herself to you. You need to give it back. Marriage only works as two people fully, completely offer all of themselves to the other person without holding back. That's the picture of marriage. It's often very different from the picture of marriage we have today. The question that's often asked, not not exclusively, but often asked, is will this person make me happy? Will, will this marriage make me happy? That's not the chief question. That's a secondary goal of what Paul has just given us here. Happiness flows out of a marriage that has unconditional love at the very center. What DNA will this person contribute to the the production of offspring? Will we have hot kids or not? All sorts of questions. Will this person make me happy? It's the wrong question to begin with. Paul paints this beautiful, subversive, countercultural picture of marriage so that people would see the church and go, My goodness, look at the marriages here. How is it that this community of people have that type of relationship those types of marriages how do you love your wife like that why do you love your wives how do you give yourself to your husband like how do you love your husband like how is this possible and our answer is we have a model jesus he's given everything for us now I want to acknowledge that some of you here this morning are struggling marriage is tough you find yourself in a difficult season maybe it's work Maybe you just feel like you're completely separate people living under the same roof. Maybe there's horrible conflict that's happening at the moment at the center of your marriage. Maybe there's suffering. Maybe there's some form of unhealthy connection with another person outside of your marriage, maybe within your family. We recognize that some of you are struggling. And we want to help because we believe that this is the beautiful picture that lies on the other side of getting help. Matt and Robin Newfeld are qualified counsellors and have a wonderful marriage that I have enjoyed seeing and admire myself. And they're going to be running a number of courses in the coming months. You're going know, to run a marriage course for those of you who are married and would like a, f- a refresher. Are they going to be running a parenting course for all the parents who are struggling to work with your little bundles of sanctification? And... Um, <laughs> And they're going to be running a relational needs course. Now, all of those courses, if you want to get a little taste of what that's like, they're going to be running an introductory in-person course on Saturday, the 3rd of July at their place in Annandale. And they would love you to attend. Saturday, the 3rd of July at and Robin's Place. This is an introductory course that will be kind of like a launch pad for all three of those courses. And those courses are going to be run in a way that's going to be helpful for you, if you're a parent at home and have children, so part of it will be in person, part of it will be online. And those courses will help you understand the narrative that you are a part of, that you have formed by virtue, probably mostly because of your family of origin, and help you realize that you have tools and ways to adapt the way that you are responding and reacting to those around you. So if you're struggling, please, there's no shame in putting your hand up and saying, actually, I need help. Matt and Robin would love to help you. You can head to their website, relationalwellness.com.au or even better, just email us, info at anchorchurch.com.au. We will pass all of your details on. But here's the thing. We want to uh, be a church that has marriages that are strong, godly, Christ-like marriages. And I want to pray that over us as a community this morning as I invite the band up and we'll transition to worship in a moment. But I want to just take a moment to pray over uh, the marriages in our church. And yes, uh, I'm I'm not praying for the single people or for people who are divorced or widowed or whatever. I, I just want to pray over a particular subset of our church community. Uh, and recognizing that often marriage can be difficult and trying, and the picture that Paul has given us here requires so much of us to be filled with the Spirit to live this out. So I want to pray over the marriages in our church this morning. So please join me as I lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have loved us unconditionally. God, if you were to place conditions on your love for us, we would be left wanting because the truth of the matter is we are quite unlovable outside of the work of the Spirit and outside of the redeeming grace of Christ. We thank you that you love us. Jesus, I thank you that you have given everything to make us yours, to purchase us, to buy us back. God, I want to pray a blessing over the marriages of our church this morning. I pray that you would strengthen marriages. And I ask that you would help husbands to love their wives with a Jesus standard of love. And I pray that you would give them strength for that, to die to selfishness, to die to ambition, to achieve the redemptive potential of their wife. I pray the same for wives, that you would help them to love their wives, to respect their husbands. Gotta pray that there would be beautiful mutual submission that happens. Father, I pray for every marriage that is struggling in this season. God, I pray that you would give couples who are a struggling a deep sense of hope. Lift their eyes beyond the conflict, beyond the circumstance, beyond the tensions that exist. Help them to see that by your Spirit, you want to, develop a healthy, beautiful, rich, loving marriage. God, we pray that we would be a church that has a countercultural way of living, that we would walk in a way, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, that all of our relationships would be impacted, shaped, toned by the radical, countercultural and unconditional love of Jesus. And I pray this in his strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.